Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your jovial podcast host. And our guest this week is David Cypress. This is actually part two of my two-part chat with David. Last week, we talked about the fact that he spent 25 years trying to get a cartoon into The New Yorker. He finally did, and now he is one of their top guys. Well, if you missed that episode, after you listen to this one, go back and check that out. Meanwhile, this week, we get more into the process, and there is a real art I guess pun included, to being funny on single-panel cartoons. We're going to get into that and also a lot of fun stories. David, by the way, also has a new book out called What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. I recommend it. I also recommend you stick around and listen to part two of my interview with David Cypress this week on Hollywood and Levine. The thing about your cartoons that I really appreciate, I guess coming from my world or whatever, is that they're funny. You are very, very funny. It's like anytime I see one of your cartoons and they are distinctive, so it's like, oh, so there's like a, a little moment of anticipation. And then I read the, the caption and I go, man, he's done it again. God damn it. How does he do this? And I'm thinking to myself, where were you when I was looking for writers? Okay? Because I could teach you how to write a script. I could teach a story structure, but I can't teach funny. And so did you ever think, well, maybe there are other avenues where I can utilize this gift I have of being funny? No, not really. I... I've just always been satisfied to do this. What I like about it uh, is I don't have to do, I mean, I love other people, but I don't have to deal with anybody else. I sit alone in my studio. I explore my ideas. I do my drawings. I, I, I laugh at my own ideas. And the process really suits me. I only began to be interested in something else when I started to think about writing. And I didn't think about writing funny. I thought about writing the same way. Actually, I think about being funny in cartoons, which is I, I very rarely sit down to work and think, oh, I'm going to come up with a funny joke today. I try to think about what I'm feeling, about what I've experienced, what I've read about, what I've seen that week. And what I've found is that when I put on paper what I feel, 
it somehow almost always connects with the audience. And it's a, it's a wonderful, mysterious thing, but humor isn't just hitting people overhead with a joke. It's sometimes a connection. You, you say something and the person, the first reaction they have, and I get this a lot is, Oh, that that's me. I thought about that too. And that, that is the nature of the humor that um, I've always explored. And cartoons are a great way to do that because they're so direct, they're so simple, and it's such a wonderful medium to express the stuff that I'm talking about. So I've always been satisfied just to do that. And when I started writing, I kind of went about it the same way. It's interesting because for me, when I write a script, the humor comes out of the character. And and I've got a situation to play with. I have existing characters. I have attitudes. And they're playing off of each other. So I've got a lot to work with. But when you're doing a one-panel cartoon, it's a, a very different skill set because you have to, as you say, connect a drawing with a caption almost instantly and... Uh, you know, you think, well, that gee, that's really easy, but oh man, <laughs> you know, as as I continue to do it, uh, it's tough. It's really a, a special skill. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying about script writing is that I've always thought of that single panel cartoon as a little play, and a little play that depends on dialogue, um, and the captions are almost all di- always dialogue. And so um, I don't really think it's all that different. It's just more compressed. And I also agree with you about, for me, I, I should have said more about this before, character is important. The look on a person's face who's being said, something is being said to them, the look on the person's face who's saying it, I've always worked really hard to get those facial expressions and those gestures right. And sometimes... Uh, some you, I, I'll draw a drawing and then I'll think oh, it could be funny if the person's finger were up in the air. It'd be funnier if they were surprised. And w- w- what's funny is that people have told me I do this when I'm drawing a cartoon. If someone's watching me, I'm always making the face that I want to draw. Um, <laughs> I think that car- single panel cartoons are character driven. Good ones. I really feel that way. Well, your style is is somewhat minimal and my style is somewhat minimal and my style is somewhat minimal because I am really shitty at drawing backgrounds and details and you know I'm not great at perspective and and that sort of thing so it's like well you know what I'm just gonna consider this a style (laughs) and 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 my stuff is minimal and I want my drawings to look funny and to have my characters all look sort of the same. So if you see one of my drawings, you you kind of know it's mine. So I'm a minimalist because I'm not that great an artist. For you, though, you've spent time really doing art. It's really just a a creative choice for you, isn't it? No, my story is exactly yours. Is it really? <laughs> I was, I've, I've never been trained. I, I was a sculptor, so I'd never been trained as a, as a drawer, uh, as, a, as an artist who works on paper. I'm self-taught, 
and at the, for for many years, my limitations. I what what I learned is that you know, sometimes your limitation can be an advantage because it does force you to discover your own style and your own way of doing things, just like you're talking about. And we're talking about cartoons here. We're not talking about Leonardo da Vinci. Right. And the point of a cartoon is to be funny. And drawing funny doesn't always mean knowing about perspective. In fact, fucking up the perspective sometimes is a lot funnier than getting it right. And so I encourage you to keep on working that way. It's not a cop-out. It's just a fact that that is the... It's just like I said before, you got to be who you are in your work. And if that's who you are, good. Now, I've done this long enough that I... Uh, I've I've expanded my horizons a little so that uh, I can draw a, a more complicated background now and then. But if you look at my work, it's usually just a room with a painting on the wall. Or if it's outside, there's a couple of trees and some hills in the background. I don't spend a lot of time doing what you're, you know, what you feel like you should be doing. And I have never once a single time in 50 years of making cartoons given a moment's thought to perspective. Don't think about that at all. In fact, the art that I love is the art that ignores that. I love like early medieval painting before the Renaissance, before anybody knew about perspectives and things were just piled up. So my advice to you is fuck perspective. (laughs) Good, because I bought a book on perspective and it so confused me with this point and that point and everything. It, it, it just so confused me that, you know, and there are some ideas I have for drawings that I think to myself, oh, God, that's, I can't draw that. I'm not there yet. I'm well, not there yet. On to another idea. I have one other thing to say about that, which is something I've learned, which is if it's something like that, make a cartoon about it. You know, make a cartoon about your worry about the fact that you, you can't do this or that. That's a good way to deal with those. those. <laughs> I actually did. I actually have a cartoon of a guy going, oh, my God, I have a great idea, but I can't draw that. <laughs> I think that's a good, that is an excellent cartoon idea. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a little meta for them, but whatever. Now, do you write at home? Right. Uh, yeah, this is my background. I write and draw in a studio. I live in Brooklyn Heights, and my studio where I am now is in Dumbo. It's about a 15-minute walk. I've never been able to work at home. The reason being that there's a lot of reasons, but the main one is the, the residual guilt over choosing this career in the face of my father's objections still is with, lingers with me. And at least when I get up in the morning and I get dressed and I walk out the door and I go to my office, I feel like I have a regular job. And that's a way of dealing. I know it sounds like I'm fooling around, but I'm quite serious. It is a very useful thing to have another place to go to for me because it really does make me give a little sense of reality to what I'm doing. And also, you know, I think it, there's a reason there are all those de- desert island cartoons. I, one of the reasons I think is cartoonists generally like to be in a, a, a clean, quiet, separate space to do your work because cartooning is a lot of meditation, really. The thing is about when you're a writer writing at home is no one thinks you're working. Okay. <laughs> so people will come into the office and start asking you questions about when are you going to get your car serviced or whatever? And, you know, you want to say to them, you know, if I was in surgery right now, would you come in 
and ask me about my car warranty. But they think that you're home, you're not working. Yeah, yeah. there's a script on my screen. Eh, he's, he's not working. So I can understand that. But in, in your case, I, I saw on YouTube there was like a, a New Yorker featurette on you. And it seemed like you were drawing a cartoon in an abandoned children's playground somewhere. And and I'm thinking, wow, what kind of office is that? That was not my idea. And a lot of feedback on that video was, couldn't he get a better office? Um, (laughs) That was the filmmaker's idea. Plus, you know, I have to say that during COVID, I was at home a lot um, because the building that I'm in right now, they didn't really want people coming into the building. So I, I did, I wrote my entire memoir sitting in the chair at home. And my wife, who was the only person who witnessed that, doesn't talk to me about car repair. She, um, she understands. She, she gets goes, that. Yeah. But I still, I was such a, re- it was such a relief to be able to come back here. Uh, it just feels right for me to be here. Does your wife look at your cartoons? Are there people that you show your cartoons and go, is, is this funny or, uh, or you, you just, if you like it, it goes in? Well, I, my wife has been my most valuable first reader and critic for my prose, but I have never shown her or anyone else, including all those other cartoonists at the Cartoonist Lunch, uh-huh. any of my cartoons before I hand them in. Not because I, I'm afraid people will steal my ideas or whatever. Or sometimes I will maybe worry a little that I'll get worried that they don't like it or that my wife doesn't like it. And I just need that lane of just me and the cartoon editor. And I feel much safer that way. And and I don't, I feel like I, at least with my cartoons, I don't feel like I need anybody's feedback. I really don't. Yeah, well, when you've been doing it for 50 years... That's that's certainly the case. Do you come up with 10 new ones every week or do you kind of have a backlog of 55 cartoons so that if there's one week where you're just not feeling it, you you just grab some of those and send them in? Well, I do that. Some of some some of my batches, stuff like that. Sometimes I go back, you know, I go uh to all my saved images of all the cartoons I've handed in, and I scroll through them and I see, well, that's a good idea, but the caption needs it could be entirely different, stuff like that. But I wouldn't feel good about myself if I didn't at least put in a, at least half of my batches new ideas that I've that I've just come up with. That's the way I feel like I'm still in the game. Cartoonists have said to me they turn in batches, and there's three or four that they think are just killer and they sell the one that they just sort of threw in as filler and then they're going really that's the one they bought this one is so much for that's the one they bought <laughs> does that happen to you too pretty universal i mean before you even started speaking i knew what you were going to say because that's a that's a universal situation for every cartoonist i've ever known but what's interesting is some at least my experience has been that the ones that they do choose, which you think wasn't the strongest one in your batch or whatever, sometimes those are the most popular cartoons I've ever done. And so Mm. at some point I have to bow to the expertise of the editor to make the right choice. How long does it take you to draw a cartoon? Not very long. 
Uh, I, I, we were talking before about drawing and you were talking about your, your drawing style. I like my, I've always wanted my cartoons to feel like I thought it up, I picked up my pen and I drew it and there it is. I, I like a direct spontaneous look to my, to my drawings. And part of that is the pen that I use. I use a croquil pen. It's a dipping pen with a, with a point in a holder the great thing about it is it's very hard to control, even if you're skilled at it. And so there are all these times that things happen that you didn't plan, that you didn't expect. And I tend to leave those things in instead of whiting them out or getting rid of them on Photoshop because they add to that sense of spontaneity that I, that I like to capture in my, in my cartoons. So drawing doesn't take me very long. Now, when you look back at a lot of those drawings that were rejected in 25 years do you slip any of those in oh, now yeah. and have a, a, any of those sold i'm nodding which you can't see on a podcast but yes 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 a large number of those have sold actually which is very very gratifying now i i do better versions than i used to do because the other thing that happens is if you're in the magazine even if you're in once really and you look at your cartoon you see a lot about it that uh, you could improve. At least that's been my experience. And so I think I have the, some of the same ideas I had all those years ago, but I'm much better at presenting them than I used to be. Now, there's a story that you talk about in your book, which I think is really fun, which is your fact check story. Yeah, that's a good story. <laughs> Share yeah. that with us. Okay. Well, Everybody knows the New Yorker is famous for its fact checkers and the cartoons get fact checked sometimes. And several years ago, I had done a cartoon, which I love, of uh, it's an ancient setting. And there's a guy, a priest in a you know hooded robe, ancient robe, and he's pulling a goat by a, by a rope. And there's another goat and he's holding a knife in his hand. And the, the goat on the rope turns to the other goat and says... I'm having my entrails read. Uh, <laughs> well, I handed it in. They bought it. And then I got a note from Colin, who is the uh, assistant cartoon editor, saying, well, fact-checking has a couple of things to run by you. First of all, the knife. It, the knife should be a single-bladed knife, not a double-bladed knife. And then he sent me a picture of a Grecian urn with the correct knife on it. Okay. He said the building in the background, it was like a temple. And he said, it has five columns. They never had odd number columns. They only had even number columns. And fact checking would like you to adjust. So I did it. And when I did, I also wrote an email to him and the fact checking department in which I said, I understand your problem with the knife. I understand your problem with the columns. But how come you didn't have a problem with the fact that there's a talking goat? that was my experience with fact checkers so we have a similar situation in television where there are research companies that will take your scripts and basically fact check so during the time i was writing cheers i was in a restaurant with an english theme called laurie's and they have yorkshire pudding and the waitress the serving wench served the uh, Yorkshire pudding and said, you know, back in ye old times when there was a beef shortage, 
people would take the gravy and sop it up with the Yorkshire pudding and it made it seem like they were eating more beef. And I thought, oh, this is a great Cliff Clavin thing. So we wrote it into a script and the script gets sent fact-checking and they call up and they go, where did you get this? And uh, we, we've searched all kinds of journals and reference material. We can't find this. And I said, oh, it's a serving wench at Laurie's. And they go, well, Jesus, we can't use that. And I said, it's Cliff. It doesn't have to be right. Yeah. It's Cliff. Yeah, the, the same kind of thing. Well, sometimes also there have been issues with the grammarians, you know, who check the captions. And what's a couple of times I've had to push back because the way people speak is not necessarily grammatically correct all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Does it bother you that you don't hear the laughs? It's not so much that it bothers me. But I love it when I do. And um, I do these, I've done a number of slide presentations, talks about my work and about New Yorker cartoons in general over the years. And man, there's nothing like a packed house. You put up a cartoon and you, everybody starts laughing. Then I know what I've been missing. I, I don't think about that a lot, but when I do get that laugh, wow, it, it's an incredible feeling. Yeah, I started out, in radio as a disc jockey, you know, trying to be funny, having program directors tell me, just shut up, you're not funny, just play the damn records. And it was so nice when I got into television and it could actually hear an audience laugh. And it's in many ways why I do it. What, what's the best though? When I, there's been a rare and precious number of times in my cartooning career when I've made myself laugh with an idea that I've come up with. And when that happens, it's just, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's a, it's a high, it's almost a physical high. Then I know I've got a really good cartoon and those ones, ones always help. Wow. That's great. Once in a blue moon, but when you surprise yourself with your own ideas, uh, it's, it's, it's like the, you didn't think it up. It's like it happened to you. Right. I know people always say, well, how do you come up with your ideas and how do you come up with, with the jokes? And I always say, you know, it's just kind of the way your brain is wired. I, I can't explain how I see something and find a way of spinning it into a joke. I, I don't know how I do it. It's just a gift. Which is great. It should be a mystery in a way. It should be something impossible to define. I think that's what's so great about it. Yeah, we have an expression in the writing room called stabbing the frog, which means somebody pitches a joke and you go, why why does that work? What if you did this? What if you did that? And it's like, okay, you have a, a frog and you stab it and dissect it and you see the inside, except now the frog is dead. (laughs) yep that's it yeah Uh, somebody will pitch a joke in a room and everybody laughs and you say okay put it down just that way and somebody will say you know but it kind of doesn't make sense and wouldn't it be better if and you go we all laughed we all laughed i don't know why it's funny 
put it down. Well, hopefully with your uh, new memoir that you're going to be doing book tours and there's going to be more of these slideshows and you're going to be hearing more of those laughs. I hope so. I mean, uh, one thing I've done a lot of in the last three weeks are interviews, but it's great to talk to somebody who sort of does what I do because uh, we, there's a lot of stuff we don't have to explain to each other and we can just talk, which is uh, great for me. So I really enjoyed this interview. I've enjoyed this interview too. This is a real treat for me. The book again, and I'm going to plug it at the, in the outro, but What's So Funny by David Cypress, a cartoonist memoir. It's really fun. And again, it's not just a cartoon book. There is an awful lot of prose and there's a lot of stuff that's also kind of heartbreaking. You've, you've led quite a life, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and I, I, keep, keep going because I want to keep getting those David Cypress cartoons. Okay, but I have to ask you about one thing. Okay. Ohio, you were the announcer for the Baltimore Orioles? Yes. The Baltimore Frozen Orioles, again. the Seattle Mariners, and the San Diego Padres. Wow. Yeah. When I was eight, I wanted to be a baseball announcer. And I didn't pursue it until I was 35. But, um, yeah, I did two years of being up in the stands at Dodger Stadium, just talking into a tape recorder, and then three years in the minor leagues, and then I was very fortunate and made it to the big leagues. Am I the only New Yorker cartoonist slash major league baseball announcer? You definitely are. And I have to say, the only other thing I wanted to be when I was eight years old, besides a cartoonist, I wanted to be Sandy Koufax. That was the other thing I wanted to be. Yeah. I wanted to be Sandy Koufax, too, and I knew by the time I was eight that it would never happen. (laughs) David, (laughs) this has really been a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. I've absolutely enjoyed it. It was great to talk to you. Just to plug it one more time, David's book is called What's So Funny? A Cartoonist's Memoir by David Cypress. And that will do it for this week of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Want to get in touch with me? Easy to do. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine where I show off some of my cartoons. Uh, They're not as funny as David's, uh, but I'm not bitter. Anyway, that will do it, and we will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Hollywood and